There is a podcast that lies between the imagination of two simple-minded earthlings. Travel with these two longtime friends, Jimbo and 80s E, as they attempt to explore the fifth dimension. Follow along with them as they take the key and unlock the door to the vast space between shadow and substance. This podcast is one of trivia, of insight, and of sounds and ideas from one of the greatest television shows ever produced. You are embarking on a timeless journey. There is your signpost up ahead. You are entering the tragedy of cinema's Twilight Zone. The residence of Dr. William Loret, which is in reality a menagerie for machines. We're about to discover that sometimes the product of man's talent and genius can walk amongst us untouched by the normal ravages of time. These are Dr. Loren's robots, built to functional as well as artistic perfection. But in a moment, Dr. William Loren, wife and daughter, will discover that perfection is relative, that even robots have to be paid for, and very shortly will be shown exactly what is the bill. guys welcome back to the tragedy of cinema's the twilight zone series i'm your host jimbo and today joined once again by hdz back in the fifth dimension uh hope everyone's doing well today uh today we'll be talking about episode eight of season two the lateness of the hour um something special about this episode it is the first of the videotaped of the uh, Twilight Zone. I think there's what, a total of six episodes this season that used the videotape to save some uh, cost effectiveness. Yes, and this is what I think of them. <laughs> Eric, yeah. not a big fan of the uh, the videotaped uh, episodes. I think it works in some instances, as in this this episode, and also in a future episode, Night of the Meek. But we'll get to that. So, Eric, do you have any questions? Right off the bat, or do you? I do actually. I do actually. Um, it's not pertaining to the Twilight Zone necessarily in any way. It's more of a this is, uh, or excuse me, this day in trivia sort of thing. So this is December seventh. Yeah, this is going to be a dead giveaway. You'll get this one really easy. But December seventh, nineteen forty-one. It's a day that will live in infamy. This day commemorates what event? That today, the day that we're uh, recording. Pearl Harbor. Yes, so, uh, do you say Happy Pearl Harbor Day? I don't know, no. but, uh, I, yeah, I don't think we would say Happy Pearl Harbor Day, but we, we definitely remember it. We and remember uh, it. Yeah, and think you of know, all those. You better, you better hope that I release this today, or it ain't going to make much sense to anybody. Oh, well, I mean, it'll, <laughs> it'll uh, still be on here, I guess. Um, I guess I'll, I'll have to release it today. You're gonna yeah, to I'll, <laughs> maybe, but, uh, you know, I was just thinking about that. And uh, maybe I'll start doing trivia dates more um, applicable to the dates that these were filmed, the actual episodes. I just uh, thought that was fun. I got one more for you. All right, oh. this, one's, this one's homegrown. What famous southern Indiana native was born on this day in 1956? Do you know? Southern That's a little Indiana tougher. Indiana native. I, in what year? 1956. Southern are Indiana. Alive? Are they still alive? They are. He is. Uh, I will say, uh, just, just guessing, I'll say John Mellicamp. That would be a great guess, but uh, no, the great Larry Joe Bird was born on well, this day. 
Pearl Harbor Day, 1950s. Yeah, so that's just a little fun way to get this party started, get it kicked off, since there's not much material here for the lateness of the hour. Uh, so I'll go ahead. And, don't think there is. Well, you might have a bunch, but I don't have. I'll just forewarn you up front. I don't have hardly anything. So uh, <laughs> let me go ahead and dive right in here. The lateness of the hour. This is the Twilight Zone season number two, episode number eight. And it was directed by Jack Smite, and it was written by Rod Serling. Uh, the original air date, first broadcast on December the 2nd, 1960, and maybe I should have done some trivia more applicable to December 2nd, 1960, but anyway. Uh, the total production costs for this particular episode are way down. As aforementioned, it was a videotaped episode, one of, what did you say, Jimbo, six? Uh, yeah, six episodes not, or five? It's it's actually not way down. Oh, okay. Uh, you might have more uh, particulars on the line items, but what I have here in front of me, the total production cost of $33,269.89. So he's no, shaking sir. his head at me. No, sir. It is $42,572.09. It's actually just $1,000 less than Nick of Time that we saw last week. Or okay, you might have more detailed figures than I do, and uh, we'll get to that in just a second. But uh, adjusted for inflation, that number that I have, the 33000 adjusts to $333,607.08 with a 902% increase. So, Jimbo, why don't you tell us about those line items, and then uh, tell us about uh, who's in this episode as far as the cast goes. Uh absolutely so um the dates of the filming were november 12th and 13th of 1960 and the shooting script dated november 4th of 1960 the producer and secretary uh there was a line for two thousand four hundred two dollars and 43 cents the story and secretary is two thousand five hundred ten dollars the cast was only paid a whopping six hundred and three dollars and eighty two cents really um, production fee was eight hundred twenty five dollars uh, agents and commissions was $2,500. Uh, legal and accounting was $250. And this might be the number you had, uh, Eric. The below the line charges for CBS was $33,269.89. And there was also a below the line charges or other of $210.95. So the total production cost was $42,572.09. cents. Hmm. Okay. Uh, yeah, I don't. Know. I got that so out I of wonder, the. Uh, I wonder if you're the the uh, totals you come up with. If that is just the below the line charges for the actual CBS, because that was like thirty three thousand. Yeah, possibly. Um, yeah, you might. Again, you have a. Looks like you have a more detailed uh, description of all of the costs there that go into that. So uh, we're going to jump into this cast. So first off, the probably the main character is none other than Inger Stevens, who plays Jana. Uh, Eric, I'm going to throw this out to you, see if you remember. Okay. She played in a famous Twilight Zone Season 1 episode. Do you remember what episode that was? Uh, not Walking Distance. Nope. I don't remember the title. I know she was in the car driving across country, and uh, you it tell me. I can't the, remember. The Hitchhiker. The Hitchhiker, the hitchhiker. yes. Right. So where she played Nan Adams uh, from that famous episode in season one. If you want to go back and listen to that, you can. Yeah, a much uh, better episode also, than this one. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> she was also in Hang 'em High from 1968 where she played Rachel. Then you had John Hoyt playing Dr. Lauren. 
He was in When Worlds Collides in 1951. Also in Spartacus, where he played uh, CR. I can't even read my writing. My gel pen went out. Caius, I think is what it says. But he was also Grandpa Kaniski on 82 episodes on Give Me a Break. So if you remember the old Give Me a Break, do you remember Give Me a Break, Eric? With I Bill do. Potter? I do. Um, there was Joey also, Lawrence. Yeah. <laughs> Irene Tedrow played Mrs. Lorne. Uh, she was uh, in Empire of the Ants in 1977. Also, she voiced Aunt May in the Amazing Spider-Man cartoon for one episode. Uh, Tom Palmer played Robert. Um, he was actually the casting director for Young and the Restless in around 1973 for about 45 episodes. He only had a few other uh, roles. Uh, Mary Gregory uh, she played Nelda. She was in Sleeper in 1973, and she was also in the movie Yours, Mine, and Ours, where she was Sister Mary Alice. You had Val, Val, Valley Keen uh, played Suzanne. Uh, she was in The Twilight Zone. Like Some of these didn't have any hardly any acting credits outside of this. The Twilight Zone, maybe two or three other ones. Uh, then you had Doris Carnes playing Gretchen uh, with another Twilight Zone. Uh, then you had Jason Johnson. He played Jensen. Uh, he was in this Twilight Zone, but Eric, he was also in one of your favorite uh, sitcoms. Five episodes of The Andy Griffith Show, where he played oh, Mr. I love Reaver, it. Mr. Blewett, and a councilman. And yeah, then, I love yes, it. of course, the great Rod Sterling himself, uh, the narrator and the uh, host for this episode. So there you have the small cast of The Lateness of the Hour. All right, uh, let's talk about a plot here. Um, for this episode, Jaina Lauren is an attractive young woman who lives at home with her parents. She feels suffocated, living there, however, surrounded by their many servants that, in fact, human-looking that in fact are human-looking robots created by her inventor father. Her parents are quite happy with the life they lead, but realize that they're going to have to do something about the rebellious Jaina including revealing at least one secret they have kept from her. And, Jimbo, that secret becomes pretty apparent early on in the, uh, well, I guess it's, it's you can kind of follow along pretty easily uh, and, and discover that with this episode. Um, very, you, you very pick up, early on in the episode. Yeah, you pick up on that pretty, pretty, uh, pretty early in the episode. Um let me just give you, as aforementioned, a little bit of technical specifications on this episode because they are a little different. Um, the Lateness of the Hour was one of six Twilight Zone episodes shot on videotape instead of film in an attempt to cut costs. By November 1960, the Twilight Zone Season 2 had already broadcast five episodes and finished filming 16. However, at a cost of about 65000 per episode, the show is exceeding its budget, and as a result, six consecutive episodes were videotaped at CBS Television City and eventually transferred to 16mm film, or kinescope, for syndicated rebroadcasts. Total savings on editing and cinematography amounted to only about 30000 for all six entries, so they really didn't save a whole lot of money. By doing this, I know it just killed Rod. Like he was not a fan at all of you know the the budgetary cuts. Um, it the thirty thousand was not enough to justify the loss of depth of visual perception 
uh, or perspective, excuse me, which made the shows look like a stage-bound live TV drama such as Playhouse 90, which was also produced by CBS, or even daytime soap operas, which at the time were quickly and cheaply produced live on one or two sets. The experiment was deemed a failure and never was attempted again, thankfully, for the rest of the... Right. Time. Right, but also um, part of the cost-cutting measures that was used by the network because they own their own studios, so they didn't have to rent equipment, <coughs> stages, lots, costumes, and props from MGM. Uh, Cayuga found the figures were indeed much lower than film presentations. Films had to be developed and then edited and then scored. Videotape had its advantages, such as allowing Jim Brady to edit the tape scenes on the spot and avoid the cost of film development. So there's another little cost, what they tried to save didn't cost right there right um just real quick too i've got more notes than normal on you know specifications of t- technical stuff but just want to talk a little bit about kinescope because i did a little digging on it let's give you a quick definition of what kinescope was it was a uh, it was shortened to kine or also known as telerecording in britain it's a recording of a television program on motion picture film directly through a lens focused on the screen of a video monitor. And it's really cool. I saw a picture of one. You know, hey kids, uh, you know, back in the day, back way back in the day in the infancy of television, <laughs> guess what? They didn't have, like, recording devices. Everything, you know, was when you had the camera in front of you and the little red light went on, you were on. Like, you know, the camera was on or off. It was all done you know, it's live television because it was brand new, but kinescoping was like a revolutionary breakthrough at the time because they actually would sit a reel-to-reel, like, 35-millimeter camera, and it was set up on, I don't know, it looked like a a big rolling cart, and again, like like I just said, um, that lens was focused directly on a video monitor, and whatever they taped live on TV, they would record it on that kinescope on that 35 millimeter, and then they would rebroadcast it. You know, if you were in a, if you were on the West Coast, and something was being broadcast on the East Coast, like a four-hour time difference, and that they would, you know, that was sort of the early versions of tape delay. They would record it, and uh, it was called kinescope, and that was from. Okay, let me go back to this. This process was pioneered during the 1940s for preservation, rebroadcasting, and sale of television programs before the introduction of quadruplex videotape. And quadruplex videotape was revolutionary, and it uh, its origins were from 1956 and eventually superseded the use of all kinescopes um, for that purpose. So, Jimbo, the best way I could describe, like, quadruplex videotape, I mean... You and I are probably familiar with it, but did you ever have a reel-to-reel, like, audio version of that or knew someone? Yeah, well, that's basically what the quadruplex videotape was. It's a, those big reels, and they have the magnetic tape, and then they would record uh, television programs from, you know, like the mid-50s. So think of, like, I Love Lucy. I think it was recorded on, maybe, I'm not sure about I Love Lucy, but there were, you know... Uh, TV shows who were recorded on quadruplex videotape, and then that was easier to rebroadcast uh, on that. And then from there, the next generation would be like me and you uh, in the 80s, VHS, video home recording, I think is what VHS, video home system or something like that. And then uh, I remember seeing the first camcorder on VHS and as a kid, 
and I was like, wow, this is, yeah, it was a big thing that, you know, you carried on, on your shoulder, and that was, that was huge, and having a VCR, I remember the first VCR I got in my, you know, my house, not to stroll down memory lane, but just some, what was, some what different. What was the first two movies that you, you guys purchased on VHS, do you remember? Oh, boy, that's a good question. I think the first. I, I know, I know the I exact think, two that we bought. It was a. It was an animation. I think it was. Um, uh, what was the little mouse? Fievel, American Tail. I think that yeah. was the first one. The first uh, movie that we saw at home. We the first two that we bought was Beach Blanket Bingo with Annette Funicello and Frankie <laughs> Avalon. Yeah. And Indiana Jones and the Last. Oh, Crusade. that was a those good one. The, yeah, those were the two I remember. Yeah, so that's just a little bit of a uh, progression of how technology has progressed. I mean, now today, I mean, that would be rudimentary. We'd be like cavemen if we used <laughs> VCR for recording now <laughs> or VHS. But, uh, you know, back in the day, that's that's how they did it. And that's how they did uh, these videotape versions. They would be kinescoped and then rebroadcast at a later date. So, something, uh, I'm changing course on you, but, you know, when Rod Sterling starts talking in this episode... It always bothers me when he goes robots. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, he, yeah. He always robots, not robots, he, robots. Yeah, I don't know if that was that pronunciation just has changed or evolved over years. But I noticed that in several episodes, especially in season one, they call them robots and not robots. So that's, do you, yeah, do you that's, think that's because they're more androids than they are robots? I've never even thought of it that way. Possibly, but uh, yeah, if we open the if we launch into the episode i don't have a whole lot i'll just be up front with you i don't know what you got jimbo so well, throw it at me as well, far as, as opening scenes along. let's let's go yeah. ahead and let's talk about the episode and i'll throw some i got a lot of stuff at the end that i want to throw towards you because um there's some different things um so the the first thing that we see you know is, is they show a picture of the house and the rain i like how it shows the rain on the windows i think it's it, it works really well in this videotape format and then you see, uh, what's her name, uh, Jana looking out the window, and then you hear this moaning. I was like, this moaning goes on for probably a good three minutes of the thing. And, uh, and it's, it's the mom getting a, a shoulder massage from uh, one of the, the maids. And she's just going, ah, uh, It's like, this is it's it's disturbing. uncomfortable, you know what I mean? It's and very the cringeworthy. Dad, the dad's just sitting there smoking his pipe, you know, reading, reading a book or whatever he's doing, you know what I mean? And and Jaina's like, you know, how come we don't ever go anywhere? We we just stay here. We, you know, I'd like to do something different. And she's getting mad at the maid. She's getting mad at the mom, and she's like, I don't understand how why we can't just open the windows and it just goes on and on and on. Yeah, she starts out, doesn't she? Start out looking at a, a photo album, maybe. Right. Is that early or is that later? Uh, I think you know that's what's a it? later on when she she was like, okay. The what well, another interesting factoid, sort of, I guess. Uh, Rod makes his appearance very late in the episode, as compared to other episodes. It's almost seven minutes. Like seven minutes in, or something. Yeah. Yeah, seven minutes into the episode, before he uh, give, delivers his monologue. Um. Again, you're in the opening scenes, as Jimbo described, and when you, I guess it's more toward the middle. This this um sort of builds this uh, angst and then it, it really almost builds into anger and frustration by Jana. and uh, as we move along in the episode 
and she just feels trapped. She wants to get out and experience the world. She wants to go and maybe get married or have a, a relationship with a young man. And she wants to do all of the things that young people want to do. They want to launch out into the, to their own lives. But uh, I do have a piece of the script as this sort of culminates and comes to a climax she says this, she says, Oh, Father, we're atrophying in here. We sit here day after day and year after year while the clock turns and turns. And we decay with every minute while Nelda the maid and Robert the butler and Gretchen the cook and Jensen the handyman, uh, Jaina, and then her father says, Jaina, while these domestics do everything but are breathing for us. Nelda, will you leave us? Uh, yes, sir. Nelda, I'm speaking to you, Nelda. This is Jaina speaking to Nelda. Yes, Miss Jaina, don't you agree with me, Nelda? You're, uh, you were saying, Miss Jaina, I found, uh, excuse me, I was about to say that I was about to make the mention of the fact, please don't stop on my account, Jaina. We have no secrets here, don't we? No secrets? Is that it, Father? Why, that's all that we have is secrets. That's how we live, by shutting off the world, turning our backs on it while soundless, fleshless things glide around here and with your efficient menstruations turn my father and mother into jelly. And that, that to me, sort of encapsulated the whole episode. She, her frustrations of, you know, that... that I think in the, later in the episode she uses the line um, that telling her father basically that you think you're controlling them but they're actually controlling you because uh, you're atrophying sort of along that whole theme of like you're just laying in here and wasting away you depend on these robots (laughs) if you will for (laughs) you depend on them for everything and you don't do anything for yourself and yeah so anyway jimbo you look i think i think you need to step back a minute and and go back to the beginning of the episode too where uh you know she she goes out into the hall she throws that glass on the ground and and that maid just goes over there starts picking it up right now but then remember she has her little storm and she runs up to the top of the stairs and uh you know the 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 husband comes out there with and all the other uh robots are out there and she ends up pushing that one maid down the stairs, and she just falls all the way down the stairs. And then she looks up yeah. at that silly grin, like, ha, ha, ha. "Yeah, that was a was that like, was a kind of a creepy, creepy scene." Yeah, 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 that was kind of cool how they did that. I did like that. Um, I don't really have much of anything else. Uh, it's really um, the dialogue. I think it's well written. I will give it that credit um, that that the dialogue is good. Rod wrote a good um, dialogue between people, but. Uh, the, it's really a lot of the, the same. Jaina is just sort of on a monologue. She has a lot of lines here. Inger Stevens has a lot. Uh, she carries the weight, the bulk of the episode, I think. And uh, um, she come. We come to the conclusion that she wants the other robots. She wants them done away with them. She wants them to be dismantled. She's telling her dad, like, if you want to save this family, basically, like, you got to get rid of all these. Um, robots because they are eventually going to be your demise, you know. And, and so you know what? She's... He actually does it. He tells he tells the butler. He says, "Hey, I think it's Jensen." He says, "Hey, get, gather them all and go down to the basement." Yeah. The, but this, this is where you start seeing them all thinking, "This is a, haven't I been the best maid? Haven't I been the best butler? Haven't I been the best cook? Haven't I been the best chauffeur?" Whatever they're saying. And he's like, "Look, mm-hmm. I gave you an order. Follow it." And that's where you see the butler open the door and they all start filing out. Now. <laughs> So you go back and you see the father and the mother in the study and Jaina comes in there and she starts running down the stairs. She looks in the, 
the foyer. She looks downstairs. She looks downstairs. She's happy. Yeah. She she's is a- ecstatic. Yeah. There is nobody around. And she's like, now we can be a real family. You know, we can go on vacations. We can throw these big parties. Maybe I can find a guy. Um, you know, and, and the dad is just, you can tell the mom and dad are just, they've got another secret that they haven't let out yet. You know what I mean? Right. So and that. And that becomes she, clear. She's like, wait a minute, wait a minute, why, why aren't you telling me? What's going on? Because he says something that triggers her, you know what I mean? And she goes back to the, the, the book and opens it up again, and he's like, she's like, how come, you know, you've got the maids and the butlers from 10 and 20 years, and she's like, here I am by the Christmas tree and, and by something else, and I look the same and, and all that. He's like, that's where she basically figures out that she is a machine as well. And uh, <laughs> I'm a machine. Uh, I'm yeah. a machine. From the top but of the, the stairs, dad, the dad's like, "Look, Janie, you weren't just a machine. You, we made you as a daughter. We made you out of love. <laughs> you know what I mean?" And so she just, she just can't handle it. She starts, you know, she goes up to the top of the stairs and she has this big, another climatic moment. You know, and she falls down, and um, the mom and dad are down there talking, and he's, she's like, "Oh, you're not going to do that." Or he's like, "No." He's like, "I can't. I can't not picture her being in this house since she's been with us so long." And um, the mom goes over there and reaches up to the stairs, trying to hold her hand. Well, the next, the end of the, sh- the show is the mom's sitting there starting her old uh, growling again or her old ecstasy moment where we're getting uh, shoulders rubbed. And it fades up to the top, and it's none other than now Jaina, who now has a new name, and she is now the new maid of the house instead of their daughter. So. Yep. Even though it was very easy to see, if you were paying attention to the dialogue at the beginning of this movie, it was very easy to see where this was headed. Um, I still think it was re- really well written and it was really well done. So, Eric, I got a couple of questions for you. Okay. Um, did we start seeing the robots becoming self-aware, um, as Inger did, um, something like a throwback to something about machines? Do you think that they would have all came around and overthrown the mom and dad eventually? Or do you think they were just happy with the way they were programmed to carry on if Jaina would have never said anything? I mean, I think so. We, we talked about that in the Thing About Machines episodes and AI and all that, how, how they become self-aware. This was sort of the primitive version of that, right? So I think, yeah, probably eventually uh, they would have become self-aware and they wouldn't want to be destroyed uh, just given more time. But uh, let me give you a little statistic here. I have th- This kind of leads into this. Uh, I'll ask you a question. <clears throat> uh, this, uh, I guess it's a chart, really, and it's talking about the countries with the highest density of robot workers, okay? So this is installed industrial robots per 10,000 employees in the manufacturing industry, and this comes from 2017. So, Jimbo, if you had to guess what country has the highest number of density of robot workers per 10,000 employees, what country would you say is number one? And then I'll go ahead and give you the the top six. Well, I know in my industry, there is a lot of robots in my industry. In the autom- automotive yeah. industry, there is a ton. Mm-hmm. Um, but the way you're wording it, I'm not going to say it's the U.S. It's I a country. Say, yeah, yeah, it's not U.S. I will, I will give I you will, that. I will say, if I had to guess, there's three that come to mind. I would say either Germany, Japan, or China. But I'll, I'll just go with Germany off the top of my head. Okay. Germany and Japan are in the top five 
oddly enough, China is at the very bottom, which there is 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13. There are 14, and Japan is at the bottom. The number one country is South Korea with 710 per 10,000. Singapore is number two with 658 per 10,000. What you guessed, Germany has 322 per 10,000, and Japan is number four with 308. The United States is number six with 200 robots per 10,000, and that's of 2017. So I thought that was kind of an interesting little tidbit there that we could throw in as it pertains to robots. But right. Jimbo, go ahead with your next question. You got another Eric, one for me? would you take a robot made to clean your house and do your dishes, such as Rosie um, from the Jetsons? Yes, absolutely I would. <laughs> Without question. You know how hard it is to well, keep the- this place clean? Do you do you have one of those? Do you have one of those vacuums now? The little circle things that you just hit and go. No, I'm strictly manual over here. I uh, okay. I vacuum all on my own. Yeah. Here's here's a here's an observation I had. Um, Jaina keeps saying that hey, why can't we go out to eat? You know what I mean? And he's like, well, we're gonna have just be cooked here. My question to you is, who does the grocery shopping? If they can't go outside, <laughs> they can't get wet, and who gets the cleaning supplies for the maids? And all that. I mean, because it's stated over and over that why, why can't we just go out to eat like a normal family? Uh, this is long before HelloFresh or ButcherBox. So <laughs> Amazon, baby. <laughs> how, how, how did they get their food? Yeah, Amazon, baby. I don't know. That's that's a good question. Uh, let me throw <laughs> one. Let me throw one at you. Uh, Squares questions and observation. Uh, was this a warning against the dangers of modern life, uh, of conveniences and luxury? Uh, how even today we all have we all have the benefits of connectivity through vast technology yet more and more or more than ever now people feel more isolated than ever before so maybe this was a, a it's kind of an open question there's no real direct answer but was this a warning of the dangers of you know modern life and conveniences that rod was way ahead of the curve once again well let's let's look at the let's let's take a look back at the mom and dad of this episode well, they're, they're not terrible. working. They're not working. You know, he, he's 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 obviously came up with these robots. Can you imagine how much money he could have made if he would have outsourced these his his findings of creating these robots? He would have been a billionaire, where he would have never had to work, and he wouldn't even had to worry about having androids because he would have had real maids at this point. Uh, but it yeah. never says what he did, and you know, the mom. I don't think she ever did anything in her life, according to this this episode. You know, what except I mean? moan and groan. <laughs> well, this is true. Uh, let me throw this in here too, uh, while we're while we're on this. Um, in the first of the tape shows, Sterling tried to overcome the physical limitation imposed on him by making physical limitation a theme of the script. He said, "Quote: I thought it had a good atmosphere to it." Says uh, director Smite or Jack Smite. That's really what we were working on. I don't think the plot was that good, really, but when we were rehearsing it, we were working on atmosphere more than anything else, and I think we accomplished that. Then there's the ending of the episode in which Jaina, having discovered the truth about herself, is reprogrammed as a mindless maidservant. It's a surprising shock, and it packs a wallet. Particularly welcome is the presence of John Hoyt as Dr. Lauren. With a career that spans more than five decades, Hoyt is one of that small band of character actors who infuse individuality into every role they play, never letting a character become invisible or anonymous. Here he brings a cool and superior be- uh, bearing, seemingly or seeming totally believable, as a restrained and brilliant inventor who is almost always in control. 
Yeah, um, I have a little something to say about him, and I'll just I'll drop it in right here. It says, uh, what did I write? How devoid of compassion and pitiless is Dr. Lauren that he would erase Jaina's memory just because she became aware, air quotes, and wanted a life outside the four walls of their home. Not only that, he recalibrated her to only serve his needs as a maid. Why didn't he program her to be another daughter with different memories? Because remember, she, he had the memory track that he could, that was the thing that he installed. That's uh, mentioned several times in the episode. He could have given her another memory track as a daughter, but he didn't. Because to him, the robots were only there to serve his wants and frivolous desires of its maker. That's what I wrote. And I, I really, he seems like a really docile, nice, kind man. But when I dig down, that life of luxury trumped everything uh, for him and his wife. Otherwise, he would have created another daughter robot. He did it once, but he made her a maid in the end because he couldn't be without, you know, his you know, benefits of having a robot do everything for him. Why would you even keep a picture book? If they would have never had the photo book, none of this would have ever been a problem because she wouldn't know what a picture was. She doesn't go outside. She has yeah. memories, you know what I mean? But if I was them, I wouldn't have had a picture book in there to begin with or a photograph of anything or of anybody, you know, because she's like, hmm. well, you got photos of all these mates. And had he done it, has he done this before? Has he reprogrammed somebody else, you know? Oh, without doubt. Daughter? Without Absolutely. doubt, he has. Yeah. Right. And I'm not even so convinced that he even destroyed the other robots when he went down to the basement. I know. No, that no. They... I know he didn't. No. Absolutely not. I think maybe the, the the girl that was massaging the mom at the beginning became the daughter now. Yeah, maybe. But, <laughs> I, but mean... I, thought it was, I thought it was interesting that he gave her an entirely new name, too. You know what I mean? Uh, Jaina, a new name at the end. I forgot her name in, at the end of it. Okay. So, yeah, I'm about at the end of the episode, but I, I didn't catch that, so, yeah. Yeah, but, yeah. when she's rubbing her shoulders, hey, she's like, oh, that'll be enough. I, I, I just watched it, so I can't remember yeah. the name. Uh, I just, that really, really turned me off, besides the moaning and groaning of the episode. It was really <laughs> that, unsettling. That's the worst part of it. I know, I've mentioned it several times. I don't mean to beat a dead horse, but just the the compassionlessness he he comes across dr lauren comes across as this great man quiet and amicable like nice grandfatherly type guy and it no it her jana's existence was only because he wanted to serve a need in his own life and well we couldn't have a child so we're going to create a robot it wasn't it wasn't done out of the benefit of humanity or you know to serve some higher purpose it was just to serve himself which you know that goes back to the i mean we could have a long discussion about human nature and why people do what they do uh on a human nature level and yeah it was very self-serving and it just really i don't know it turned me off i guess i'm well well to little... me i don't i think it's it's easy to see from this episode that they didn't have very many friends uh, right. If they had any at all, I think that's because they've been in there, that house so secluded um, that they made the robots their friends. You know what I mean? Uh, or the androids their friends and their family, as you see. Um, they're very the the mom and dad are just really weird people. But if you have everything you need, Eric, if you had and that house had to be paid for for something. He was an inventor, so he had to sell something to get that big mansion he had. Um, if you had everything you need, would you still work? If I had everything I, I need, would I still work? 
Yeah, I would because I have a, a philosophy. Uh, but you wouldn't on be work. Do, you you wouldn't be doing the job you're doing now. I can almost guarantee. No, you no, would. no. I right. wouldn't be doing that. But I would be trying to do something for sure. But Jimbo, what? Go ahead and what's your overall take? I know you like this episode better. Why don't we yeah. go ahead and give our uh, overall think, takes? I think that this from uh, the cost savings that they tr- they wanted to do. I think they did the best that they could do with what they were given the budget to do. Um, when I first watched this episode, to me, it's like when you watch a regular movie and then you watch something in 4K, ultra high definition. Um, even though it looked like the videotape, it's just because since we've been watching all these uh, Twilight Zone series on the regular formatted thing and they throw this at you, it kind of vibrant and it stands out to you in more than a way. Is the story uh, something that's going to stand out? Probably not, but it was very easy to decipher. And even though I knew where it was going, I still liked the the road that they traveled to get there. Um, To me, this had the classic Twilight Zone twist at the end, even though you saw it coming. Unlike last week's Nick of Time, there was no twist to it. It was just, oh, we're getting out of here, out of this town. Um, So for me, I think this is probably right around a seven, seven and a half uh, episode. It's, it's, It's not top tier, but it's definitely not at the bottom. Um, but we'll see some because there's some uh, other ones coming up that I think are worse than this movie or worse than this episode by far. So that's my take on it. I, I, I enjoyed it. I don't think there was a problem with it. Yeah. Um, so just to answer our earlier question, they rename her Nelda at the end. Nelda. So, that's what it was. so that was the original maid's name. They just right. renamed Jaina to Nelda so they so can compartmentalize think, you think, you it in their mind. Her, you think that maid probably went to Jaina then? If she's still around and not in a thousand pieces, and that's kind of, you know, I guess up up for debate. Um, my overall take, just quickly, and we can wrap this baby up. Um, I wasn't a fan. I didn't think that the the uh, the script was fine. I thought it was very well done. Again, Rod did a, a very good script. It was well written. Um, but I just, the production, I just could not get over the production. I thought it was distracting. And then again, not to mention it again, but the, the moaning and the groaning. That, the lady, what was her name again, that played uh, Mrs. Lauren, I, I, Irene Tedro. Uh, I'm sorry, she gave a horrible performance. <laughs> I mean, top to bottom. I don't know if it was lines. I know she had other parts, but she was absolutely terrible. Not not only for the sounds and grunts and all that stuff, but her lines just they were they seemed like over the top or they were overplayed. And she, uh, anyway, well, that, that's that's probably not her fault. She's probably just doing what the script called for. Don't defend her, Jimbo. <laughs> I'm, I'm defending her a little bit. I mean, I'm just saying if they're paying you, but but let's. Let's not forget, Eric, that the casting only was paid what six hundred and three dollars and eighty-two cents for this movie or this. Okay, sorry. okay, adjust that for inflation. That's probably a decent <laughs> wage. <laughs> no, but uh, it's is it Mr. Beavis or Mr. Dingle the Strong? Is it that bad? N- no, it's not that bad of an episode. We but I would got to Mr. Dingle, yes. Yeah, so yeah, well, we did cover Mr. Beavis and. <laughs> That one was pretty bad. Uh, Eric, is it as bad as the Mighty Casey? Yeah, that would be another one that ranks really low. I would put this one probably at a strong five and a half. It might inch up to number six. Uh, In IMDb, it's a 7.1. I think it's a little high for that number, but I just couldn't get over the production. It just... 
he really makes a difference in my mind. I know other people, maybe not so much, but uh, yeah, I just, I didn't like this episode. And then maybe it was because I got really angry as I sat and thought about Dr. Lauren and who he was as a character. <laughs> it just, it just sort of sullied the episode for me. He's, but, he's uh, went from 80s ease to angry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess so. But uh, yeah, I definitely would give this one a... <laughs> on the episode the wrong, Bob. <laughs> yeah so well, with uh and you got anything else in uh, wrapping no, this I'm episode just up say, uh, uh join us next week when we will be covering the uh was it the trouble with templeton i think yeah yep so uh we'll see how that one goes i wonder if angry z will be back or if he'll be a little less or a little more calm next week so yeah uh well i think eric we're coming to a close on this episode with that being said this episode's coming to a close and that's a wrap and cut. Let this be the postscript. Should you be worn out by the rigors of competing in a very competitive world, if you're distraught from having to share your existence with the noises and neuroses of the 20th century, if you crave serenity but want it full time and with no strings attached, get yourself a workroom in the basement and then drop a note to Dr. and Mrs. William Loren. They're a childless couple who've made comfort a life's work. And maybe there are a few do-it-yourself pamphlets still available in the twilights.